Well, it is two weeks since Easter, uh, a day when many of us uh, donned our seersucker suits for the first time in, uh, in the, of the year, uh, when many women put on their Easter bonnets for the first time of the year and which officially uh, marked the beginning of spring here in the low country. Uh, unfortunately, with the heat and humidity outside today, I think we might have it might have been a short spring that lasted about two weeks, and we've now segued into summer already. But in the gospel for today, uh, we are reading an account that took place on the same day as Easter. This is still Easter Day. And I mention that because it's important to, for us to place ourselves into the context uh, in which we hear of this mighty working of Christ. We have the privilege to read the Gospels as history. We have the privilege to read the book of Acts as history and to know the rest of the story and to know what happened. Uh, but it's helpful for us to try to place ourselves in the shoes of those who, um, about whom we're reading so that we can understand how it would have appeared to them. So imagine, if you will, you are one of Christ's disciples or Actually, you're one of these two uh, disciples, and you have just seen Christ betrayed. You've seen him hung on the cross. You've seen the sword plunge into his side. You've seen him be buried, and then this morning, earlier this morning, you heard an account of these women who went and said they saw an empty tomb, and Peter and John uh, also said, saw the same thing. Well, that is where we are in the story. That very day, two of them were going to the village, to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself draws near. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. He draws near, but somehow they, they cannot know who they do not know who he is. <clears throat> and he says to them, What is this conversation you are holding together as you walk? And one of them stood still looking sad. Now and Cleophas answered him and says, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he says to them, what things? Now, we live in an age where we have Twitter and we have 24 hour, a 24-hour news cycle and we can get alerts on our cell phones and we are bombarded with information constantly. Um, you watch a television show and there's a crawler at the bottom of the, show, of, of the screen giving you information upon information. They did not have that luxury if one wants to call it a luxury, in first century Jerusalem. However, it was a very small community and word would have traveled by mouth. Uh, we've had something like this happen in our day. Think back, for those of you who have lived here at least two years, what it was like in June of 2015, right after the, the, the shootings at Emmanuel Church. If someone had said, come up to you and said, what's all this talk about Emmanuel Church? What's the big deal there? You would have been rather stunned. 
Because if you remember those days, that was all that was, not only was that all that was on the news, but even in casual conversation, that's what, it, it inevitably came up. Uh, you go to the barber shop, it would be discussed at the barber shop. If you called friends who lived elsewhere, they would want to know how things were. Well, that's about how it would have been following Christ's death. It was a very public death. Many people would have seen it. Many people would have heard about what had happened, the remarkable events surrounding it. And so for that reason, when Christ asked what they're talking about, they stand still. And Cleophas asked him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know what happened there, these things? What has happened there, the things that have happened there in these days. And then Jesus asked them something that quite frankly seems like a stupid question. When I was a young lieutenant at Fort Knox, uh, and I learned in the earlier service there were some uh, fellow armor veterans over in the earlier service, but when we were learning radio procedures, the sergeant who was teaching this class of young lieutenants uh, to- told us something that is often said in the Army and is often said in other contexts. There's no such thing as a stupid question. And not 10 minutes into that class, one of my classmates, and I can't remember what the question was, but he asked him a monumentally stupid question. <laughs> so much so that the sergeant sat there dumbfounded. And one of our uh, other officers, one of the other student officers piped up and said, well, so much for your theory about stupid questions there, Sergeant. But this seems to them a, a, a dumb question. What things? He, this person must have been sleeping for the past three days. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. How our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They had pinned all their hope on Christ, only to see him betrayed, crucified, hung on a cross, a a most shameful death. Killed and buried. And besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. Well, that gives an indication that they remembered something of what Christ had said because he often made reference to uh, after three days, that the Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, that this and that happened in three days, that he could rebuild the temple in three days. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find the body, they came back, saying that they had seen that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Well, in those days, the testimony of women didn't count quite as much as the testimony of men. That's just the way it is. No offense to the members of the fair sex who were present. But then, on top of that, those who who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. Speaking, of course, of, of Peter and John. 
And they're conveying this to Christ. Telling Jesus about Jesus, as it were. And his response to them is, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures and, and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Well, in a sense, Christ did exactly the same thing that Peter did on that sermon at Pentecost. He went back to the scriptures. Now, in the reading you've just heard, we skipped about 20 verses in the interest of time. Uh, perhaps this afternoon you can go back and look at Acts 2 and, and read those verses and see how they apply to Christ. But when Peter was speaking to the men of Judea and those who dwell in Jerusalem, he revealed unto them the things that the prophets had said about Christ. The testimony of the law and the prophets concerning our Lord. And every now and then I will, in driving down the road, I will see a church that says it is a New Testament church. Or someone will tell me I'm a New Testament Christian. And, and I don't mean to be critical of them, I really don't. But my response is one of sorrow. Because we are called to be whole Bible Christians. Uh, Jesus certainly had a high view of the, the Old Testament, of the law. He said that heaven and earth would pass away, but not one jittle, jot or tittle. I guess a jittle is a new uh, mark that I've invented. But a, a new, not one jot or tittle would pass away uh, from the law of God. But the law and the prophets point to Christ. When we read of animals being sacrificed under the old covenant, that's not merely uh, animal cruelty, but rather it is point looking forward to Christ's ultimate sacrifice. As the writer of Hebrews reminds us, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so when we read of those sacrifices and when they performed the sacrifices that were commanded them, they were expressing their faith in that great sacrifice, that oblation once for all that was to come, Christ giving up of himself on the cross for the sins of his people. <clears throat> and so it is, <clears throat> excuse me, so it is that Peter, after he has said this, uh, we read that he tells them that this Jesus whom you crucified is the man of whom the prophet spoke. Imagine if you are, if you will, that you're a faithful Jew and you hear that. Your response is going to be exactly as, his was, as theirs was. You're going to be cut to the quick. If you're a proud Jew, trusting in your own righteousness, you're still going to be cut to the quick, although perhaps for different reasons. And so they respond to Peter and they say, what shall we do? And Peter says to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
the first baptism that I ever performed was of a patient who was terminally ill. I got a call from the nurse that, that he wanted to see me. And he was a fellow from uh, the hills of West Virginia, back in the holler. Uh, and he had lived, quite frankly, a very rough life. Um, was dying of cirrhosis of the liver. And he called and, and very bluntly said to me, in rather simple terms, Preacher, I know I'm dying, and I need to know what I need to know. And so I went through a very simple explanation of the gospel to him and, uh, and then said, Would, have you ever been baptized? And he said, no, and so I baptized him there. As I relayed in the first service, right after I had baptized him, he said to me, well, some people believe you need to be put under water. And I thought to myself, you picked a heck of a time to bring up that little uh, excursus. But I was a deacon at the time, and, and a few months later, I was being examined uh, for ordination as a priest. In my diocese, in the Diocese of the Southeast, it is usually done uh, separately. So you ordain a deacon, you're examined, you're ordained a deacon, and then you're examined while you're a deacon to be ordained a priest. And that may or may not happen. Uh, those of you who are familiar with the diaconate know they're vocational deacons, and uh, transitional deacons, and your transition is not necessarily certain uh, at that point. And uh, that story came up. And some of you who live, have lived in Somerville for a long time may remember Bishop James West. He was a very large, uh, very animated uh, black man, a very dear friend of mine. I, I hated uh, when he, he died very suddenly. But he said, so what did you tell him? And I, I was trying to cover all the bases in this exam and, and, and make sure I did everything. And finally, the bishop just went, and I said, what's wrong? And he said, I'm dead. You took too long. <laughs> he said, and he, I had a Bible there, and he said, turn, <laughs> turn to uh, Acts chapter 2. Verse 38, and I said, repent and be baptized. And he said, well, that's the kernel of it. Not that that's all you need to know, but that's the basis of it. To repent, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to signify that if you've not been baptized. And we are assured if that happens, that we will be saved, that, and the Holy Spirit will come upon us. Furthermore, the promise is not just to those who hear, but to uh, those who hear and to their children, and as many are far off. That's why it's right and proper for children to be brought to the font as infants, to be marked with the outward invisible sign of the gospel, looking forward or, or in hopes that there's also an inward and spiritual grace, and looking forward to the time when they will own their baptism at confirmation. And they will make for themselves the promises that were made for them. And so Peter tells them to save themselves from the generation. And those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. 
that's a pretty good day in church growth for any congregation. Uh, Trip would be very happy to have 3,000 souls added. Well, I don't know, you'd have to add a fourth and fifth service, I guess. But anyway, Peter went back to the law and the prophets, just as our Lord did, bearing witness concerning themselves. And so as they drew near to Emmaus, he acted as if he were going further, but they urged him, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And so he went to stay with them. And when he's at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Whether that is exactly a Eucharist, we are not really told. And interestingly enough, I found in preparing for this, I found commentators who took either side. I would love to have, do a survey of the church fathers and see what they taught. But regardless, it certainly seems to have Eucharistic implications. And after that, their eyes are opened and they recognized him. And then he vanishes from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn with us while he talked with us on the road, or burn within us? while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. That's interesting because they had, they had said, well, the day is far spent. The night's coming. They had urged him to stay with them because it was getting dark. But note what they do. They rise that same hour and return to Jerusalem. They're so impressed and so moved by what has happened that they are willing to travel at night. And so they do. And they find the eleven who were with them, with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has indeed risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they made known what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Well, as the collect for today alludes, Christ makes himself known to us in the breaking of the bread and in the drinking of the wine. When we come to the, the table every Sunday or however often we do it, uh, and by however often we do it, I mean I hope you're doing it more frequently than just every Sunday and not only occasionally on Sunday. If, you, if you're not doing it every Sunday, but when we do that, Christ makes himself known to us. And he condescends so that we can feed on him in the very ordinary means of bread and wine. And so that he can make himself known to us. And that we can know him. And when that happens, hopefully our, our eyes are opened as we, as we feed on the Lord more often. And contemplate uh, the great mysteries of the Eucharist. And really, if you think about it, the Eucharist is a very simple meal, but it's also such a profound meal that I find the, the longer that I'm a Christian, the more I understand the significance of it. But if we do that, he makes himself known to us. 
Well, in a few minutes, we will come to the table. We will feed on him. And by God's grace, may we give thanks that he has appointed these means for us to know him. May our knowledge and love of him increase, and may our devotion to him increase, and may we serve him more faithfully. Furthermore, may we go and tell others of the good news of Jesus Christ, that they too can have this promise, not only them, but their children and their children's children.